Good morning. Well, that's quite good. Can I um, just say, start by saying how lovely it is to uh, be here this morning. One of uh, the joys, as, as Richard said, I'm, I'm not often at the 9.30, um, one of the joys of having teenage children is you finally get a bit of a lie-in on a Sunday morning. And as a result, uh, I'm not so often here and more often at the 6.30 service. Uh, the advantage of that is I do get a little bit more sleep. Uh, the downside is I've completely lost all my skills when it comes to action songs. Um, but it was good to try and refresh them this morning. However, whichever service we go to, uh, whether it's the 9.30 or the 11.15 or 6.30 or, or, or any of the others, um, it does, of course, beg the question, why do we go to church at all? I mean, I know why I'm here today. There'd be a rather embarrassing 20 minutes now if I didn't turn up. But why, why do I come on other Sundays? And why did each of us make the time to come today? Maybe some of us are like the person who, when asked by a friend why they found time in their busy life to go to church, said, you just don't know what you're missing. It's such a wonderful rest after a hard week's work to sit in the pews and think about absolutely nothing. <laughs> or as Abraham, Abraham Lincoln astutely pointed out, if, he said, if you gathered everyone together who fell asleep in church on a Sunday morning and laid them end to end, they would at least be a lot more comfortable. I, um, I remember a good friend of mine and a very committed Christian talking to me about 21 years ago. Pippa and I had just got engaged, and he was only half joking when he said to me, he said, now that I've sorted out a wife, I would have to find another reason to keep coming to church. And he was right to a point. I, you know, one of the reasons I had chosen to go to Holy Trinity Brompton, which is a large church in London, was that there were a large number of pretty Christian young women there. But in the seven long years, it finally took me to persuade one of them to marry me. Uh, that was not the only thing that kept me going. Because the reality, of course, is that no, no one makes us come to church. And hopefully, we're all here today because this is where we want to be. They're like you, they're like me. You see this as a chance to worship God with others, to meet with, to strengthen, and to be strengthened by other Christians, to grow in our relationship with God, and perhaps even to learn something. Well, today is the second in our summer mini-series, looking at the uh, group of psalms called the Songs of Ascents. These are 15 psalms, they're from number 120 to 134, and they were all written to be sung during the three annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem. As we heard last week, Jerusalem was both physically and, in a sense, spiritually the highest city in Israel. And therefore, you really did ascend. You really did go up to Jerusalem as you traveled towards it and as you sung these songs of ascent. And in today's psalm, David explores this journey with a real sense of joy. I don't know whether you've come across it before, but if you have, it may be because this is the psalm that Hubert Parry put to music for the Queen's coronation. And more recently, the same piece was sung and played as Kate Middleton walked down the aisle for her marriage to Prince William. And I think it's, it's this same sense of excitement, of awe, of commitment, even of nerves, that Queen Elizabeth and Kate Middleton must have felt, that David is expressing as he looks forward to meeting God in Jerusalem. The psalm starts so beautifully and so positively 
I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad, as the authorised version says. Or perhaps even better, my heart leapt for joy. This is a psalm about looking forward to worshipping God. A psalm about what that brings to our lives. And of course, a psalm that reminds us about the God whom we worship. It is, if you like, it's a psalm about going to church. And it starts with David saying how excited he is to be on his way to meet with and worship God. And my hope is that as we look at it today, we will all capture something of that excitement, of that anticipation, that awe, and even that sense of nervousness in terms of how we approach church and how we approach God in worship. In particular, there are a couple of points that I would pull out from this psalm, and they're summarized on your, I think, purple batting order you've got. So keep that to hand if you like. The first of those is that worship gives us a structure, gives us a framework to our lives. It's the basis and core from which to build our lives as we focus on the fundamental truths of who God is. It focuses us in on that. And the second thing we'll look at is that worship nurtures our need to be in relationship with God that the process and habit of worshipping God in church on a Sunday as well as elsewhere not only helps us to get to know God better, but builds our desire to get to know him better, to build our desire to be in relationship with him. So let's look at each of these in turn. And firstly, that worship gives us a structure for our lives. Verse 3 says, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up to praise the name of the Lord. As I'm sure you know, Jerusalem wasn't just a place to worship God, it was the place. Jerusalem was the home of the tabernacle. In David's time, that was just a tent, and it later became Solomon's amazing temple. But this was the very place on earth where the Spirit of God dwelt. And everything in Jerusalem was focused on this remembering and celebrating what God has said and done with the Jewish nation. Everywhere you go, everywhere you went, you were constantly reminded of the three great foundational realities of truth. God created you. God redeemed you. God provided for you. Another translation of verse 3 is, a city that is at, at unity with itself. There were no loose stones. There were no leftover pieces, no awkward gaps. Everything fitted together, each piece doing what it was made to do. It was whole and true and complete. And what is true architecturally was also true socially because this is the city where all the tribes came together to worship God. Worshipping in Jerusalem reminded David and the Israelites how all the tribes of God were as one, all created by him, all redeemed by him, all provided for by him. And it's the same for us in worship in church today. I've got the joy, as Richard was saying, of speaking at three very different services today, each one with different people from different places, with different backgrounds, different ages, different skills, different gifts. And yet we can join together as one united body of Christ. In Revelation chapter 7, John is looking at heaven and talking about what the future of the church, what it has become. 
And he says, there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. This is what David was starting in Jerusalem and what we fulfill every Sunday here in Claygate and what Christians do across the world. We gather in unity from all backgrounds, colours, cultures and ages and stand before God's throne to remember that he is the God who creates us, who redeems us and who provides for us. And in this age of increasing division and separation, this psalm reminds us that the church is where everyone should be welcomed and where everyone may find a home. When we come together in the name of Jesus to worship God the Father, his Holy Spirit will bind us together, closely compacted, just like the city of Jerusalem, with no loose stones, no leftover pieces, no awkward gaps, whole and true and complete. If you like the perfect bride of Christ, to mix my my metaphors, the subject of his love, but also pure and perfectly made. And that is a wonderful framework from which to base our lives. But not only that, at a more personal level, worship nurtures and builds our need to be in relationship with God. We live in a world at the moment where what we feel is often seen as the most important thing. Feelings come first, and they drive our choices and our life's direction. I'm sure no one here has been shallow enough to have been watching the cultural event of the summer at Love Island. Um, I certainly haven't, but I did dip into it for research purposes only. Um, If you don't know what it is, it's a program where young and beautiful men and women are put together in a villa for a number of weeks to find love. And at the end, the best couple, as voted by the TV audience, win £50,000. It, it sounds awful. But, but in fact, the contestants were surprisingly nice. They, they were kind. They were supportive. They were generally well-meaning. They also had clear moral compasses. But what drove those morals was not some external guideline of what is good and true or bad, but rather their own feelings. If they felt something was good, then they believed it must be good. Equally, if they didn't feel it, then it couldn't be good. But it's not just on Love Island. Feelings are the barometer that most millennials and Generation Z, as you have to call it, those people under 35, in other words, measure truth by. If it doesn't feel right, it can't be right. This is carried into relationships. If today I feel love, then I must be in love which to a point is fine. But the implication is, as soon as I don't feel love, then I do not love. Life and love have become more transient, more focused on me and my feelings than on an external or God-centered measure of good and truth. And this is becoming the pervasive norm in our culture and can affect our attitude to church. I mean, obviously not as blatantly as that, but Whilst it is, of course, easier to worship God when we feel positive, when we feel in a good place with him, it's easy to come to church. But what about when we're not? When perhaps we've been angry with someone, or we've done something that we're ashamed of, 
or we're just not in the mood. Rather than finding worship just a bit harder, do we sometimes convince ourselves that it may even be hypocritical of us to worship God if we don't feel in the mood? If we don't feel it, we'd be lying to ourselves if we said it or sung it. It therefore might be more honest for us to stay at home and to feel and only turn to God in worship when we feel better. But this psalm reminds us that worship is not, that it is not something that is generated by my feelings. It's not about where I'm at. It's about where God is at. It is generated by who God is. And it reminds us to fix our eyes on God and not on our own feelings. You see, even though David is clearly in the worshipping mood as he writes this psalm, he's rejoicing, he's excited, that's not the reason why he's going to worship God. He and the tribes of Israel worship God, in verse 4, according to the statutes given to Israel. In other words, they're going to worship God because God has told them to. God has commanded them to worship him. This does not mean, of course, that God is just a big egotist waiting, wanting people to tell him how wonderful he is. He commands us to worship him because it is good for us. It is as we worship that we get to know God better and build our desire to get to know him better. God has made us, God redeems us, God provides for us. These are facts about him, not feelings within us. And therefore, the natural, honest, healthy, logical response is to turn to him in praise and worship. This doesn't mean for one moment the feelings are not important. They are. And they're as important in worship as they are in any other relationship. But what I feel at any moment does not change who God is or change my need to worship him. Rather than worship being an active response to what we feel, it is an act that develops feelings for God. As one person put it, it's easier to act our way into a new way of feeling than to feel our way into a new way of acting. So worship, if I can sound slightly blasé, is a game about God, not a game about me. But as we've already seen, it's also a team game. And the pitch for that game is church. It's not a solitary one. If we neglect worship, if we stop coming to church, it won't be long before our relationship with God begins to be affected. God will be pushed to the margins as time passes, and those truths, that framework for life that we were discussing earlier, will slowly give way to feelings, vague feelings of being spiritual. Our focus on God will slowly drift back to a focus on ourselves. God's made us to live in community. And that's one of the reasons why, as a church, we'll be looking at 40 days in community this, this autumn. As the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And even more as we see the day approaching. We can't be Christians on our own. We can't live without fellow Christians. And we most definitely can't live apart from God. Just as David was excited about coming together with all the tribes 
in worship, to worship God in Jerusalem. So does God encourage us to be excited about coming together with all those around us today to worship him at church every Sunday. So in conclusion, worship in church creates a framework on which to base our lives and encourages and deepens our relationship with God. But to what end? Should it make any difference to our life outside Sundays? If we look at the last three verses of the psalm, David turns his thoughts outwards. Pray, he says, for Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls. And although it's correctly translated as pray, the word in Hebrew really just means ask. It's exactly the same word that would have been used to ask for a second helping at lunchtime. So what David is saying here is this praying is not the sort of formal praying that Jews used to do in the sanctuary or later in the temple. This is the informal asking of God, talking to God as they go about their daily lives. This is about lives constantly in touch with God and caring for those around them. Worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. Coming to church does not satisfy our hunger for God. It merely whets our appetite. Our need for God is not taken care of by coming to church and engaging in worship. Instead, church should be the place where our love for God and therefore our love and our practical care for others is nurtured, encouraged, and developed so that our lives through the rest of the week are changed to be more like Jesus. Eugene Patterson who, among, uh, Peterson, who amongst other things wrote the message translation of the Bible, has also written a wonderful study on the Song of Ascents, and it's available on the, on the bookstall uh, book, uh, book at the back. The title he chose for that book is, is a quotation from Nietzsche, of all people, uh, and it's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And in this, as, as Linda introduced to us last week, he asked the question of whether we are tourists or pilgrims. Are we tourists rushing through life, impatient to get to the answer, only to move straight on to the next experience when we get there? Is our life an an acquisition of emotional selfies on holiday? Are we just ticking off sights of life without ever really understanding their true value and importance? And when we look at our own faith, do we see it as something to fit in only when we have enough leisure time? Is it just a collection of worship and religious experiences that add zest to our lives, that give us a breadth to life, but don't add to its depth or to the fundamental core of who we are? Do we fall into the trap that Gore Vidal describes as today's passion for the immediate and casual? We want experience, but do we want the hard work of growing? Instead, Are we prepared to be pilgrims, willing to commit our lives to a journey whose destination is to be ever closer to God, whose path is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life? Are we prepared to embark on that long obedience in the same direction? I want to end with two quick thoughts. The first is from the band Radiohead and their song, The Tourist. Sometimes I get overcharged, that's when you see the sparks. They ask me where I'm going at a thousand feet per second, 
Hey man, slow down. Idiot, slow down. It does sound a little bit more profound in the musical setting. But the point is, are we just tourists, or idiots as they say in the song, whizzing over everything at 1,000 feet per second, ticking things off, but with no sense of personal or spiritual growth or change? Do we need to slow down and go deeper and not just wider? The second thought is from the Nobel laureate, William Faulkner, who talked about things being either monuments or footprints. A monument only says, at least I got this far. A footprint says, this is where I was when I moved again. Let's not come to church to put down monuments to an experience, to tick off the Christian box, but rather let us come to church to worship God week by week, month by month, year by year, to put down footprints in the sand of our life which mark our lifelong journeys to be ever closer and ever deeper followers of Jesus.